Open your Bibles, please, to Mark 16. This is the end of our series in Mark. We have been in this book, for the most part, for the last year and a half, about 18 months, maybe 19 months. And Lord willing, we're going to finish our study today. Have you ever asked for something for Christmas, and then you were disappointed with what you received because it wasn't quite what you asked for? Anybody relate to that? I, I can relate to that. A few weeks ago, I told you that as a little kid, I enjoyed listening to records, and I can remember there was a Christmas very early on. I'm guessing I would have been five, six, at the most seven, and one thing I asked for that Christmas was a record of Christmas with the Chipmunks. Very spiritual gift, I know. But I asked for Christmas with the Chipmunks, and Christmas morning came, and I got Disney's favorite Christmas songs which were fine. It was good. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't what I asked for, so I was a little bit disappointed. About a decade later, I asked for a new Bible for Christmas, and to be specific, I wanted a Bible like my dad's. He had a King James Version Ryrie Study Bible, and that's what I asked for. And what I got was this Bible right here, which is a new King James Version Ryrie Study Bible. And at the time, I was very disappointed by that. And I know that's silly, just as silly as it was about the Chipmunks record. But I was very disappointed because at that point, the only translation of the Bible I'd ever read was the King James Version, so I, I wanted it for that reason. That's what I was used to. It's also the version we used at school. We had to memorize verses from it, so it made sense to me that I wanted to have a King James Version of the Bible. It turned out to be a great blessing because I've used this Bible now for however long since then, about 30 years probably, and those of you who are close enough, it has some issues, so I actually retired it this year, but I've used this to study from, to teach from, and this fall I got a new Bible to, to read from and to preach from, but I still use this on a regular basis, so it's been a, a huge blessing, a great gift. This was also the first study Bible I had ever read, and I know this is common knowledge to most of you, but if you've never seen a study Bible, either in the margin at the side or in the margin at the bottom, there are notes there. And there are comments, commentary, there are explanations, there are definitions, and that is intended to help you understand the Bible that you're reading, and it's great. Most of the time they're very helpful, but we also have to remember that the notes that are here are not inspired. Okay? The text of Scripture is inspired. The notes are helpful. They're not inspired. You with me so far? What do you, what do you mean by that, Bob? What does inspired means? Inspired means breathed out by God. We'll talk about that in a couple other terms here in just a minute. For the first time in my life, as I read this study Bible, I came across notes like this one. Um, since you're in Mark 16, if you want to back up, you can read it with me. But Mark 15, 28, this is a verse we studied a few weeks back. I read notes like this. This is the verse, verse 28 of chapter 15. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And when we came to that verse, I mentioned to you, some of you, depending on the translation you have with you, you don't even have verse 28. So if I go down and read the note on this study Bible... 1528 says, this quotation from Isaiah 53.12 is not contained in many manuscripts. And as a teenager, when I read that, that kind of messed with me. 
Uh, what do you mean it's not in many manuscripts? What does that mean? Is, is the verse supposed to be here or is the verse not supposed to be here? Now, when I came to that section a few weeks ago, I told you, you may remember, I said, as we look at that, I'm not really that concerned that it's not in some of the manuscripts, maybe even not in many manuscripts, because he's quoting Isaiah 53, 12. I know that's scripture. And a very similar verse appears in Luke 22, 37. So it may be that someone copied that verse over from another passage like Luke. That's possible. But I know that it matches with other scripture. That's basically what is happening when we get to Mark 16. I've known that this was the end of Mark ever since we started Mark. And I, I knew we were going to get to this. And some of you are thinking, okay, it's the end of the gospel. So what, Bob? That's fine. If you leave here today and that's still what you think, that's the end of the gospel. Wonderful. But this is a longer disputed passage. So that one verse they're saying, that's not in a bunch of the manuscripts. Well, this section is not in a number of the manuscripts. When we get to Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, here is what this Ryrie Study Bible says. Remember, this is not inspired, but it is to help us. It says, these verses do not appear in two of the most trustworthy manuscripts in the New Testament. Though they are part of many other manuscripts and versions. If they are not part of the genuine text of Mark, the abrupt ending at verse 8 is probably because the original closing verses were lost. The doubtful genuineness of verses 9 through 20 makes it unwise to build a doctrine or base an experience on them, especially verses 16 through 18. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, by the time we're finished, hopefully you'll understand if, if any of that went by you because I was going too quickly. But what is he saying? How do we respond to that? Well, I'm going to spend the first half of my sermon or so trying to answer that question. How do we respond to a statement like that? Should I be worried? Should these verses be in my Bible or not? Should we be studying them? Should I be preaching them or not? Again, what Dr. Ryrie wrote there is expressing his opinion. And it's an educated opinion. It's a biblically informed opinion. But it is his opinion. And because it's an opinion, there are differences of opinion on this passage and some of those others. Now, this is the end of the Gospel of Mark, right? There are various theories about the end of the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to share, this is five, there are probably more than that, but I'm going to give you five of them. Theory number one, Mark intentionally ended his Gospel at verse 8. Where we stopped last week, that's the end of the Gospel. And that theory does fit his theme that he's brought up several times of people responding in amazement to either the teaching of Jesus or a miracle of Jesus. So let's look at verse 8 just a second. It says, And they, that's the women, went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So that would be the end of Mark as he wrote it. That's what he intended. Now for most of us, that seems like kind of a, a sudden, an abrupt ending. It does, maybe it's not as satisfying as the ending that you would want it to be. So another theory is that Mark unintentionally ended there. That he was working on his gospel and he died, or he was in some other way hindered from finishing what he intended to. That he was going to write more, but for whatever reason, unknown to us, he never did. Third theory and this seems to be what Ryrie and the people who wrote that study Bible think, 
Mark wrote additional material different from verses 9 through 20, but they're lost. Something happened to them. They're gone. We don't have them today. Theory number four. This is the most basic. Mark wrote verses 9 through 20. Simple enough. That's kind of what most of you were thinking anyway. Number five. Someone other than Mark wrote verses 9 through 20, but they are still inspired. You say, how does that work? Well, this would be similar then to Deuteronomy 34. Does anybody have any idea what happens? That's the last chapter of Deuteronomy. That's your clue. What happens? Moses died. How many of you think that Moses wrote about his death? It could have been prophetic. Nobody wanted, nobody wanted to vote for that. Probably Moses didn't write about his death. Somebody else wrote about it. Maybe Joshua. Okay? But I don't think any of you are losing sleep at night thinking, I don't know who wrote the last chapter of Deuteronomy. I know they're called the books of Moses. Obviously, Jesus referred to them as the law, the books of Moses, the law of Moses. He thought they, but Moses didn't write the last chapter of that. What are we going to do? Is it scripture? None of you have ever had that thought, I bet. Anybody? You've been keeping you up at night? You've at least thought about it? Thought about it, didn't keep him up at night. That's a relief. I'm glad, Jeffrey. So in the same way, it could be that someone else wrote this ending, someone other than Mark, and that by the sovereign will of God, it got included in some of the manuscripts because he wanted it included. That is possible. This 12-verse section is commonly referred to as the longer ending of Mark. So if you start looking at this online, looking, got questions, has some articles about this, the longer ending of Mark. Why is it called the longer ending? Well, if you have with you, I'm pretty sure, an ESV, a New American Standard, or an NIV, if you're reading one of those, you may have something in italics or the margin or a note at the bottom that says this, that there is another shorter ending of Mark, and here's the wording of that, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions, and after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable preaching of eternal salvation. Did Mark write that? I don't really think so. Is that inspired? I personally don't think so, but there are people who believe that that is the correct ending of Mark. So what do we do with this? Here are some questions I'm going to attempt to answer. Did Mark write Mark 16, 9 through 20? Is this section inspired? Does it belong in the Bible, and should we study it? I'm going to attempt to answer those questions. And as we continue, I will share my opinions with you. But more importantly, I'd like to share with you how all of us should respond when a portion of Scripture like this comes into question. And you can use these same principles if you're reading the Bible and you don't understand something or that doesn't sound right. You think, well, that, that goes against something I've read over here. Same principles apply. So in that sense... I'm trying to show you some strategies as well for reading and studying the Bible on your own as we consider what to do with the ending of Mark. So here's what I'd like to do right now. I'd like to read the ending of Mark with all 12 verses. Would you stand, please? And I'm going to read. This is Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. Now when he, Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. 
she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we are so grateful to have your word, to know that we have your word, to be able to count on your word. And Father, I pray that that truth would come out even as we study this passage that is questioned. Father, I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to teach us all things again this morning, to clarify, to help me to be as clear as possible. Lord, I pray that you would reassure us through this study today that your word is reliable and your word is true. We know that your word is settled forever in heaven. And Lord, even as we acknowledge that truth, we believe that truth, so often we struggle in various ways with unbelief. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would help us. That we would say like that father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Lord, you've given us a mission to preach the gospel everywhere to everyone. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to that. May we be believing people and may we be obedient people. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. Give us hearts with soil that is ready for the implanted word. And we pray that you would work your will in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to give you a total of three main points today, three main ideas, but I'm going to give you just the first one right now. And the first one is we can trust God's word. We can trust God's word. I said I was going to talk more about inspiration. God has inspired his word. That's in 2 Timothy 3.16. I believe, and many of you I know from your testimony believe, that God has inspired the very words of Scripture. That means he breathed them out. He superintended the process when Mark and others were writing down the words of God. He was overruling, superintending that process, guiding them. The Holy Spirit was guiding them so that they wrote down exactly what God wanted on that parchment or on that scroll. That means it was inspired. 
That's verbally, it is inspired. Plenary, every word is inspired. He arranged so that what was written in those original, we call them autographs, the original manuscripts, when it was written down for the first time, that is perfect. It is inerrant. That's the word for that. It does not have any errors. Now there's another important doctrine for us that God has preserved his word. It's called preservation of scripture. He has allowed it to last. If you look at the box of food, it'll say whether it has preservatives. What, it, what are those there for? Hopefully it says no artificial colors and flavors and preservatives, but if it has preservatives, like salt was a preservative even back in Bible times, that is to make it last longer. Well, God has made his word last. He has allowed it to endure. He has done that by the faithful copying of manuscripts, because they couldn't just take what Mark wrote down on that scroll and put it on their copy machine. Or, more modernly, they couldn't just scan it with their phone. They couldn't do that. So someone, and we call them scribes, had to write out word for word, word by word, and they did this meticulously. That's how we got our Old Testament and New Testament. And if some of this seems like review to some of you who were here when we studied this in January, remember we talked about how we got the Bible? That's how we started this year, that... By God's providence, that's how we're ending this year, talking about how we got the Bible. And God allowed for faithful scribes to copy out the Word of God. And we have many copies, many manuscripts that agree. Now, over the years and over the centuries, some scribes either intentionally, I don't like to think that, but possibly intentionally, or more likely unintentionally, added to or omitted verses from what they were copying. That may be what happened in Mark 15, 28 that we looked at a few minutes ago. That Here's a verse that is almost the same in Luke, and here it is in Mark. As we approach this passage today, these 12 verses, the last thing I want for any of you to think is that we don't have the word of God or that we can't trust it. We absolutely can But I also want to be forthright with you so that you're prepared in the future if someone tries to tell you that the Bible can't be trusted or that the manuscripts in the New Testament are inconsistent. They're all over the place. How are you going to respond to that? The fact is that there is amazing agreement among the manuscripts. I heard various statistics and, and read various statistics this week. GotQuestions.org says 99% agreement among the manuscripts of the New Testament. Very, very reliable very high agreement. But when there are differences, translators have to make judgment calls as they compare the different manuscripts. Now here's sort of a trivia question for you. Does anyone know how many verses there are in the book of Mark? Like total verses. We have 16 chapters. Anybody want to take a shot at it? Guess something. I'm looking for participation. 500. I hear 500 here. Any other guesses? 300? 700? 1,000? All right. Now we have some guesses. I like it. There are 678 verses in Mark. Those verse numbers weren't in his original either, but they are there to help us find our place. So there are 678 verses. Do you know how many verses in the book of Mark are questioned, as in they don't come in all the manuscripts? They don't appear in all the manuscripts. Want to take a guess at that? Less than 678. 
Very, very good. Well, and, and you know, because we're talking about these 12 verses, that it's going to be at least 12. And since I pointed out one other one, you know that it's at least, at least 13. So it's between 13 and 678. Anybody want to take a guess? 20. Good guess. 17. There's 17 verses in the book of Mark that don't appear in some of the manuscripts. So, a little quick math, that's 2.5% of the verses in Mark that are questioned by anyone at all. And again, why are they questioned? Because those verses don't appear in some of the oldest manuscripts. If you have a King James version with you this morning, or you have a new King James version with you, you may not even be aware that there's anything unusual here. But if you have an ESV or an NASB or an NIV or some other more recent translation, you probably have these verses in brackets, or maybe they put them in italics, something like that, and you may have notes in your margin about these verses. I'm going to share with you the end of a note from my ESV study Bible. And those, these words will be on the screen behind me as well. In summary, verses 9 through 20 should be read with caution. As in many translations, the editors of the English Standard Version, that's what ESV stands for, have placed the section within brackets, showing their doubts as to whether it was originally part of what Mark wrote, but also recognizing its long history of acceptance by many in the church. The content of verses 9 through 20 is best explained by reference to other passages in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Most of its content is found elsewhere, and no point of doctrine is affected by the absence or presence of verses 9 through 20. I'm going to read that last statement again. Most of its content of verses 9 through 20 is found elsewhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, and no point of doctrine, none of our beliefs are affected whether it's there or whether it's not there. Does that make sense? So I have given you a bulletin insert. If you had figured out what it was, you could have figured out that it was 17. Because there are 17 verses here. And what I've given you are cross-references for all 17 verses. Even if this wasn't written by Mark, even if it shouldn't be in the Bible, and I'm not suggesting that it shouldn't, these are biblical verses. These have biblical support, if I can say it that way. And I wanted to give that to you so that you could look at it and study it on your own, those of you who are so inclined. So what are these cross-references? Some of you may not know that term. A cross-reference typically will appear in your Bible out in the margin, or some of you have a center column, some of you have them at the bottom or at the end of each verse, but it's telling you this word or this phrase also appears somewhere else in the Bible. And here's the address, the reference for that. Old Testament, New Testament, wherever. And that's what those are. You'll see some in Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Cross-references. Shows us that these questioned verses appear at least in part in other parts of the Bible. So let's come back to my questions I gave us. Did Mark write Mark 16, 9 through 20? And I've already given you all more intellectual material than I normally like to, so I'm not going to bog you down. If you want to talk about it or want other places to search it out, I'll show you. My personal opinion, probably not. There's internal evidence, meaning words, phrases, ideas. It seems to me, for whatever my opinion's worth, that Mark 
who wrote up to verse 8 of chapter 16 that someone else probably wrote the remainder of that. Is this section inspired? Again, my personal opinion, probably so. Does it belong in the Bible? Because if it's inspired, it belongs in the Bible. Probably so. Could I be wrong? Yes, which is why I've shared this list with you because we want to know what the Bible says. So should we study it? I'm going to say yes, we should. And I'm going to offer you one more commentary type opinion. The Bible Knowledge Commentary offers an interesting theory that Mark probably didn't write this section, but it nevertheless is Scripture because it was included early on and recognized as Scripture by those who were figuring out these letters are real, these are Scripture. We call that canon. Not like shooting artillery, but canon, a standard, figuring out which New Testament books make up our Bible. It was included in many of the manuscripts even back then. So that's the last theory that I shared with you earlier of the five, and to me that makes the most sense. Good conservative Bible scholars disagree on whether Mark wrote this, whether it's inspired, and whether it should be treated like the rest of scriptures. So when I'm unsure about any passage, and this, this is not unique to Mark, perhaps more often than you realize, I'm studying during the week, and I study this, and I'm trying to figure it out, and if I start reading commentaries, if I read nine commentaries, I can find nine opinions on what this verse means. This happens sometimes. And so I have to know what to do. I'm just going to skip that verse. That would be nice. But no, I need to know as best I can, as I pray through it, as I work through it, I'll tell you. And, and I'll tell you if it's my opinion. And if there are other opinions, I usually tell you that too. But what should I do? I should compare Scripture with Scripture. And that's why I've given you that chart so that you can research this on your own. Why do I believe this is the correct approach? Because it's the approach of the book of Acts. Acts 17.11 talks about the Bereans, a group of people. These were more fair-minded, or the Amplified Bible says more noble and open-minded, than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. They were ready to receive the word of God as Paul preached. And you know what else they did? and searched the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament for them, daily to find out whether these things were so. The Bereans were listening to the Apostle Paul preach. Was Paul a false teacher? No. There were some people who thought he was, but no. And nevertheless, they were checking him. In modern terminology, they were fact-checking him. And what were they using to fact-check him? The Word of God, the Old Testament. So if you don't remember anything else I say today, please remember this, search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. Don't take my word for it, and don't blindly accept any teaching from any person or any book, study Bible commentary, Bible dictionary, the internet. Don't take it without testing it. And don't use any standard to test it other than the Bible itself. That's why I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles while I teach. I want you to see it and study it for yourself. And when you're reading the Bible on your own and you come across a difficult text, compare Scripture with Scripture. Study it out. So Bob, are you going to preach verses 9 through 20? Even though they may not have been written by Mark. Yes, I am. Are you going to teach verses 9 through 20 even though some people don't think they belong in the Bible? Yes, I am. 
but why? Shouldn't we just skip them and all go home? Some of you might like to do that, but no, I don't think so. First, as I compare these verses with the rest of Scripture, they agree with the rest of the Gospels and Acts, as I've already shown you. And since they do, I'm willing to proceed, and I'm going to proceed with caution because there are those who question these verses. Second, there are some individuals and groups that have misunderstood and misapplied these verses. Is it because they're questioned? No, it's because they have material that some people who want to promote false teaching will latch on to. And generally speaking, those who are false teachers will take this one verse over here and they'll build their entire religion, their system on it. And there are some of those in these 12 verses. There are two of them, at least. And I want to show you those, again, so that you're equipped, so that you're ready to answer. And that you can guard against that type of false teaching. So with that very long introduction behind us, I'm going to tell you what the key word is for these 12 verses. The key word is belief. <coughs> belief. And here are the second and third main points for today. Number two, true disciples struggle with unbelief. We're going to see that in verses 11, 13, and 14. And number three, true disciples preach the gospel. We'll see that twice. We'll see it in verse 15 and verse 20. So the second point, which is our first for these 12 verses, true disciples struggle with unbelief. Go back with me, please, to verse 9. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they rejoiced. That's not what it says, is it? What does it say? And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Going back to the beginning of the verse, he, that's Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week. We talked about that last week, that Jesus rose early on Sunday morning. He appeared first, and this appearance that Mark is talking about as the first appearance, and it, it was, seems to have happened after Mary Magdalene returned from the tomb so she came, she told Peter and John, they ran, remember, John outran Peter, and then she came back, and that's when this seems to have happened. That's what he's talking about. Who is this Mary Magdalene? Well, we know because Mark's already mentioned her three times, but he chooses at this point to tell us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. That matches Luke 8, 2. And the fuller version of this story is what we read in our scripture reading earlier in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. She went and told those who had been with him. Who was that? Well, that would be the apostles and possibly other disciples who were gathered with them, probably in the upper room. And what did they do? They did not believe. That statement appears three times in this section. Luke also mentions that the disciples refused to believe her. Here's Luke 24, 10 and 11. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. And there are those who point out here what we've talked about a couple times now, that in a court of law, Jewish tradition, they did not regard what women said. That was their culture. I'm not commending that, but that, that's 
what they thought, that we're not going to listen to ladies. Okay. I don't agree. That's not what God chose to do. He chose to show them first, but okay. What happened next? Verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. So there are two walking in the country, and we know from the name that one of them is male, probably both of them, but the Bible doesn't actually tell us that. There are two of them walking, and this is given in much greater detail in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, says that Jesus appeared in another form, in a way they didn't recognize him at first. So now, at least one man, probably two men, they've seen Jesus, they didn't recognize him at first, he explained the scriptures to them, would have loved to hear that. And then in the breaking of bread, all of a sudden they recognize that it was Jesus. And what do they do? They come running back to tell the disciples. And now here's a second report, someone else bearing witness. In that culture, a more credible source, because now we have a man telling us. And how did they respond? They did not believe them either. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Verse 14, later he appeared to the 11, that's Jesus, appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe, there it is the third time, those who had seen him after he had risen. He rebuked their unbelief, that's the same root word as believe, where it appears elsewhere, belief and believe, in this section. He could have rebuked them for deserting him on the night of his betrayal, or for hiding out since then. But he didn't. He rebuked their unbelief. Why? Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. In other words, they refused to believe the truth of the gospel even when an eyewitness declared it to them. Let the irony of that sink in for a minute. These are the same people God has chosen. Jesus chose his apostles, and he's going to commission them after they have seen the risen Christ to go and tell others who haven't necessarily seen the risen Christ. And what was these guys' reaction at first? Not going to believe it. Mm -mm, No way. Forget that Jesus has told them at least four times that he's going to rise again. Forget that Mary Magdalene has come and told them, I've seen the Lord. They said, nope, not going to believe you. And then the two on the road to Emmaus come, and they say, we have seen the Lord. Nope, not going to believe. And even Thomas, who was absent the first time Jesus appeared in the upper room there, he appeared to the ten, and Thomas came back after Jesus had gone, and they said, we have seen the Lord. And he said, nope, not going to believe. We talked about that at Easter this year, Thomas refusing to believe. And Jesus told him, stop be unbelieving. Stop it. And that's what he's telling here. Mark is recording that he rebuked their unbelief. These were genuine disciples of Jesus. Eleven of them were the apostles he had chosen, but they struggled to believe. And he rebuked them for it. That means he called them to account. He reprimanded them. Now, it shouldn't catch us off guard. It shouldn't catch us by surprise when we struggle with unbelief or other believers struggle with unbelief at times. 
I would think that all of us in the room who are believers can relate. There have been times I've really struggled with my faith. I've really struggled to trust God. But if we are believers, then we're not going to stay there. Are we going to struggle with it from time to time? Yes. Are we going to live there? No. Because if we are believers, we're going to confess that sin of unbelief and forsake it. We're going to repent of our hard-heartedness, as he describes it here. And we're going to ask God, by his grace, to help us with our unbelief. We're going to ask him to give us the grace to trust him, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it. So true disciples struggle with unbelief. Next point, true disciples preach the gospel. Notice the contrast between unbelief in what we just read and belief in the verses to follow. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Go into the world and preach. We've seen that word before. Herald, proclaim the gospel. John Corson put it very well. The focus is not so much on where we go, but on what we do. What are we supposed to do? Preach the gospel. So I could paraphrase that this way. Preach the gospel everywhere to everyone. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the command. And make no mistake, it is a command to us. It was to them and it is for us. But now we come to a statement that has been incorrectly interpreted by false teachers. What does it say? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Does that statement mean that I have to be baptized in order to be saved? I heard one person say no and I have one person shaking her head. Thank you for your participation. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's not consistent with other scriptures. What are we supposed to do when we come across something? Well, that doesn't quite sound right. I don't think that's what that's saying. You compare it with other scriptures. We could look at other passages in Acts and later in the New Testament, but in this case, all we have to do is keep reading the same verse. What does the second part of that statement say? He who does not believe will be condemned. Who will be condemned? He who does not believe. It doesn't say he who does not believe and get baptized will be condemned. And it doesn't say he who believes but doesn't get baptized will be condemned. It says he who does not believe will be condemned. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Now with that said, true believers will want to identify with Christ True believers will declare their faith in Christ to others, and true believers will want to obey Christ by being baptized. They will do that. But when they do, it will not save them. Immediately we come to another controversial paragraph that has become a source of false teaching. Verse 17, and we'll read verse 18 as well. And these signs will follow those who what? Believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. These signs will follow those who 
believe. As we read through the book of Acts, we can see the fulfillment of Jesus' predictions. And we have a biblical record for all of these except drinking poison. Now, I'm not going to give you all these references. I guess I could have done the back of your paper there. But if you want these references, I'll give them to you later. See me, email me, text me. But cast out demons. Do we have other biblical record of casting out demons? Well, yes. We've had it earlier in the Gospels, and we certainly have it in the book of Acts as well. Speaking with new tongues. Yes. Day of Pentecost and beyond. Taking up serpents. Sort of. Paul had been shipwrecked, and he came, and they all got up there on the beach, and he's gathering firewood, and he accidentally picked up a snake that was in some firewood he was picking up. So he didn't intentionally pick up the snake. When he did, that viper latched onto him and then fell off into the fire, and all the people on the island thought, he's going to die. They were just waiting. They thought he was going to collapse, and he didn't. So then they decided, no, he must be one of the gods. He said, no, that's not right either. But when it says, take up serpents, that's the only account we have of that, and drink anything deadly? No, we don't have a biblical record of that. What about the next one? Lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Yes, we have that. We have that in Acts, 1 Corinthians. We could look at James. So these signs were given to authenticate the gospel message to those first century hearers, most of whom were Jews, at least at the beginning. That doesn't mean that God doesn't. That doesn't mean that God can't work in those ways today. But I believe that when he does, he generally does so in the same context and for the same reason, to authenticate his message to unbelievers. And as far as handling snakes and drinking poison, notice that no one is instructed to do those things. Rather, God promises protection to his disciples if they are forced to do those things as they bear witness for him. A little bit more on that. When Satan tempted Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, you remember that? Throw yourself off and the angels will catch you. It'll be amazing. And how did Jesus respond? Well, he quoted scripture, he quoted Deuteronomy, and he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And I believe that voluntarily handling poisonous snakes or drinking poison just to prove that you can do it because you're a believer is tempting God. And we must not do that. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We call this the ascension. And we can read about it in other gospel accounts and in Acts chapter 1. Where does he go? He goes to the right hand of God. That is a place of honor. What does he do when he gets there? He sits down. Why? Because the work is finished. The work of redemption is finished. He did everything the Father had given him to do. And he's been there ever since. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in his followers, just as he promised, beginning at the day of Pentecost. And he continues to pray for us and advocate for us before the Father. Verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Who was empowering them to preach the word? That would be Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. Who empowers us as we obey the command of the Great Commission to go and preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere? 
That would be Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And when the Lord sent the accompanying signs, he did so as they were preaching in order to confirm his word. I said the key word of this section is belief. So I pray, I hope, as I've wrestled through this this week, I desire that this has built up rather than torn down your faith. The inspiration of the Bible does not rise or fall based on these 12 verses. Not my opinion of them, not anybody else's opinion of them. The preservation of the Bible doesn't rise or fall on the various theories about Mark 9, 16, 9 through 20. We have a trustworthy Bible. We can be confident that we have the Word of God. This is not just a book that contains the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And when we read difficult passages like this or disputed passages like this, those that have been questioned, those that don't appear in all of the manuscripts, we need to trust God. Trust Him for what we don't understand and we need to search the Scriptures. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, discern what is true. The main idea is we can trust God's Word. He inspired it. He has preserved it. Number two, true disciples struggle at times with unbelief, but true disciples also repent of sin. Number three, true disciples preach the gospel. Do you preach the gospel? A more basic question, do you believe the gospel? If you do, you're saved. If you do not believe the gospel, you are lost, you are condemned. We looked at this verse at the end last week. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts, you will be saved. But if you do not, you will not be saved. Now, Believers in the room, you and I are saved today because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ manifested through generations of obedient disciples. One of these early witnesses told someone else who believed and told someone else who believed all the way down to us. It's the reason we're gathered in this room this morning. So is there somebody on your heart this morning? Somebody that you need to tell today or this week? or when you get together with your family in a couple weeks at Christmas. Yes, we struggle with unbelief, but when we do, we go to God. We confess it, we forsake it, and we tell others about Him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Anyone here this morning who would say, Bob, I don't know. I don't know about this. I don't know about this risen Christ or salvation. I don't know whether I have eternal life. I don't know whether I've ever confessed and prayed and called on him. If that describes you and you're concerned about it, and you'd like me to pray for you, would you 
look up at me, make eye contact with me, and then look back down. Okay? Believers, is there anything God has spoken to you about this morning? And by that, I mean the Holy Spirit pinpointed something. You're repenting because he's shown you to stop doing something or start doing something or to believe something or to believe something again. If that describes you this morning and you'd like me to remember you in prayer, same thing. Would you simply make eye contact with me and then look back down? Our Father, we are thankful for your goodness. Lord, your mercies are new today and your compassions don't fail. Lord Jesus, we believe what we've read today that you came and we celebrate that this time of year that you came, you were born as a baby, you lived a perfect life, you grew up and had a public ministry pleasing the Father by teaching working miracles. And yet, Lord, you were falsely condemned. And you were beaten and abused and executed on a cross. And Lord, you did that in our place. You died to pay the penalty of our sins. And we thank you, Lord. We praise you for that. But Lord, you did not stay in that tomb. We know that the tomb was empty when they discovered it on Sunday morning. And Lord, even though they were slow to believe, they were slow to understand, and they were slow to remember, Lord, by your grace, they came to believe. And so many of, of, so many of us in this room, Lord, have come to believe that you are the risen Christ. And Father, we thank you for this instruction that Jesus is at your right hand today, that he has accomplished the work you gave him to do here on earth, and that he is defending us. He is praying for us even now. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for giving it to us so clearly in multiple places in your word. We thank you for this study of the Gospel of Mark in the ways that it has encouraged me and many in this room, the way it has convicted me and many others in this room. We pray that you continue to do your work in our lives, that we would repent where we need it and that we would share the good news with conviction. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.